Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, July 8th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this broadcast, uh, we'll bring you our Pan-African Newswire Report. We'll feature dispatches on the status of the Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park in Accra, Ghana. Both uh, Sudan and South Sudan are facing internal problems as the humanitarian crisis in the region worsens. In southern Africa, Mozambique has been awarded a $600 million loan from the International Monetary Fund. We'll look at the details of that as well. And demonstrations have occurred in the East African state of Kenya over the rise in the cost of living in the urban areas. In the second hour, we look in detail at the recent Palestinian resistance against the Israeli Defense Forces, their invasion of the northern West Bank city of Jenin. We then examine the problems associated with the United Nations peacekeeping missions on the African continent. Finally, we review the outcome of the African National Congress Ruling Party National Working Committee, NWC, meeting in the Republic of South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Right now, we'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And we'll hear the music of Alhaji Sir Waziri Ashoma and his traditional sound makers. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Yeah, we might go, yeah, but this is what we must have. 
And according to a recent news report, uh, tourists uh, have been visiting the Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park in Accra, the capital of Ghana. And, of course, Ghana on Tuesday reopened uh, the Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park, a major cultural heritage in the capital city of Accra, to memorize the country's uh, first president, the founder of modern Ghana and modern Africa, in the hope of boosting tourism uh, for uh, the Ghanaian nation-state. The park, uh, first opened in 1992, has just completed its refurbishment under the Ghanaian government uh, five-year project to boost tourism and hospitality as critical drivers of socioeconomic development. The redeveloped uh, Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park in Accra, Ghana, will undergo a temporary closure from midnight uh, last night until Tuesday, uh, July 11th. The purpose of this closure is to facilitate the preparations for the park's commercial operations. Mr. Edward Au, the acting director of the Kwame Nkrumah National Memorial Park, issued a statement on July 7th to announce development. In the statement, for any inconvenience caused, and emphasized the park's commitment to delivering an exceptional experience that surpasses the expectation of both the community and visitors. The Kwame Nkrumah Memorial Park, situated on the former polo grounds in Accra, where Ghana's independence was declared, houses the remains of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and his wife, uh, Madame Fatia Nkrumah. The park recently underwent refurbishment at the cost of $3.5 million U.S. dollars. In another news uh, taking place on the African continent, uh, the chairman of the putative sovereign council of the Republic of Sudan, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, will not participate in the upcoming meeting called by the Intergovernmental Agency on De- Authority on Development next week in uh, the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, according to the Sudanese Foreign Ministry spokesman. A four-way summit is scheduled to take place in Addis Ababa on Monday, bringing together the heads of state and government members of the quartet mediation on the Sudanese crisis, namely Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, and the Republic of South Sudan. While El Burhan and the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohamed Hamdan Delgallo, better known as Hamete, were invited to the summit, the Sudanese Foreign Ministry spokesman confirmed that El Burhan will not be attending. The Sudanese diplomat reiterated Sudan's rejection of Kenya's chairmanship of the Crisis Resolution Committee, stating that that Sudan believes President William Ruto close ties with the Rapid Support Forces leaders and his associated economic interests make him an impartial party. It is natural for Burhan to decline the invitation to the summit. Sudan is not interested in any proposal from EGOD under Kenya's chairmanship of the committee to address the crisis, the spokesperson for the Sudanese Armed Forces wing of the military stated and emphasized. On July 6th, Somalian President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed sought in vain to convince Burhan to change his mind about the Kenyan chairmanship of the quartet. The Rapid Support Forces confirmed they have also received an invitation from EGAD for the meeting, but according to a senior official, the invitation did not include the agenda. And in the Republic of South Sudan, uh, President Salva Kiir has accused his first deputy in the transitional government of national unity, Reich 
Mashar, of keeping a secret army, which he described as work of those who do not desire peace. Here made these accusations during a political rally held in Wow, uh, just this last past Tuesday, July 4th, uh, where his candidacy received the endorsement of members of his ruling Sudanese People's Movement uh, from the Bahia El Ghazal region. According to Kier, quote, as we were preparing to come here to Wau, uh, we received a report of six people killed and another wounded in the Wunkur and Ruwang administrative area. Uh, they were on a peace mission. This is the issue of someone who does not want peace. And the good thing is that my first vice president, Dr. Reich Mashir, has accepted that they are his people who went and killed those individuals. They are his people, unquote. Uh, Chair and Mashar formed a coalition government to implement the 2015 peace agreement, which was revitalized in 2018. However, key provisions of the agreement, such as security arrangements, have not been finalized. Uh, in other news, in the southern African state of Mozambique, the International Monetary Fund said yesterday that its executive board has completed the second review of a three-year loan program for Mozambique, which greenlights an immediate disbursement to Maputo of some 60.6 million U.S. dollars. The initiative aims at economic recovery reducing public debt and financial vulnerability while promoting inclusive growth through structural reforms in the Southern African nation, the IMF said in a statement yesterday. It has brought Mozambique's total disbursements under the extended credit facility arrangements to $212.9 million. According to the IMF review, based on the performance of the program, the Mozambican government adopted substantial measures to resolutely face the macroeconomic challenges and fully comply with the agency's requirements, in particular, the maintenance of a fiscal perspective in line with the established targets. In response to the International Monetary Fund's announcement, the Mozambican government said that the financing is a demonstration of the financial institution's confidence country. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, police in Mombasa, Kasumu, and Migori towns have lobbed tear gas canisters to disperse crowds. Calm prevailed from early Friday morning, but soon turned chaotic when demonstrators engaged in police uh, in running battles as the Saba Saba rally began. The chaos began at around 9.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m. in Mombasa as police lobbed tear gas at the protesters trying to contain the situation. Mombasa streets are currently flocked with several demonstrators, also joined by political leaders, among them Senator Mohamed Faki. In Kisumu, hundreds of protesters braved the chilly morning weather to begin processions over the high cost of living. There were reports of a group of protesters barricading Tika Road, Nairobi, and pelting stones at passersby. Security officers were forced to step in to quell the situation. Police tear gassed the protesters blocking the road and causing vehicles to change their course. Also, in the Anza region, tension has gripped parts of the area as the Saba Saba protests 
kicked off, resulting in paralysis of transport and business activities. In Kisumu, Migori, and Siaya, hundreds of protesters braved the chilly morning weather to begin processions over the high cost of living. Learning in schools in the region has also been paralyzed after most learners failed to report to school over fears of chaos. Migori, protesters engaged police in running battles as early as 7 a.m. yesterday morning. This is after the protesters blocked the Migori-Asabania Highway with boulders. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to the developments that have been taking place uh, in West Africa, the 19th Ordinary Session of the Council of Ministers of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, is holding a conference in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, Guinea-Bissau, and this conference was held uh, yesterday and the day before. Uh, the ministers considered the 2023 interim report on the state of the community, the financial situation in the community, as well as the political and security situation in the region, among other issues. In a statement during the opening ceremony, His Honorable Dr. Omar Alui Touré, the president of the ECOWAS Commission, highlighted that the 2023 interim region on this other community will provide a holistic assessment of the achievements, challenges, and opportunities of the management as they work towards the realization of the regional integration agenda. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast go to the pan-african radio network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for this week Carnivals and cotton candy and you and 
Experts believe Israel's military assault against Palestinians in Jenin in the occupied West Bank may be a war crime. But what's behind this assessment? And will anyone face international justice? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum. In one of the fiercest assaults in two decades on the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces in just two days brought death and widespread destruction to Jenin. At least 12 Palestinians were killed and thousands more displaced from the Jenin refugee camp. The tactics included airstrikes and Israeli snipers shooting from Palestinians' homes. Civilians bore the brunt of the attacks with hospitals and vital facilities among the targets. Thousands of people, already refugees, have been left homeless once again forced to flee. UN human rights experts say on first examination, the assault on Janine may constitute a war crime. We'll be discussing shortly with our guests the legal implications of this and if anyone might ever face justice. But first, this update from Nida Ibrahim and Janine. People here tell us that if they try to escape one horror of the two-day Israeli assault on the refugee camp, then they're faced with another. The infrastructure has been totally destroyed by the Israeli forces 
not only the roads, but you're talking about electricity and water, leading people to rely on bottled water, or some of them were carrying water in the buckets and bringing them home. The uh, officials in the camp are trying to put some sort of an emergency plan to give them a little bit of electricity. But we're also talking about people whose homes have been totally destroyed and demolished. Others have been homeless because they cannot come back and live in their homes, so they're relying on the help of others, of strangers uh, to stay. Basically, we're talking about a refugee camp, people who have been displaced already from their homes. We've met people who told us that, you know, we, our whole life has been about displacement with refugees. Some of them said, you know what, we're not leaving and we want to die here in our camp. So you hear a lot of difficult stories by Palestinians. Some of them are relying on handouts, on aid, because the, already you're talking about an impoverished community that cannot afford, already in some of them, we're already uh, using and relying on the help of aid. If you talk about hospitals as well, those have been attacked by Israeli forces, by bullets, by tear gas, as well as airstrikes near hospitals. So wherever you go here in the camp, People have very difficult stories to share and they want the world to know that the Israeli assault has traumatized them and their children. For Inside Story, Nida Ibrahim, Jinin, the Occupied West Bank. International law uses three criteria to define a war crime. That includes launching an attack in an area that can cause widespread damage, injury or destruction. Attacks on hospitals or clinics that are not military targets and depriving civilians of what's considered objects indispensable to their survival as a method of warfare. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In Ramallah, Nur Odeh, political analyst and former spokeswoman for the Palestinian Task Force on Public Diplomacy. In the Italian city of Catania, Francesca Albanese, special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territory occupied since 1967. And in Melbourne, Jeffrey Robertson, founding head of Dowdy Street Chambers and a former U.N. war crimes judge. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us on Inside Story today. Noor, let me start with you today. The Janine refugee camp has been the target of recurring and intensifying attacks by Israeli forces over the past couple of years. What's different about this latest assault? I think what's fundamentally different about this assault is that it brought back uh, memories of the 2002 invasion. It was um, um, the number of Israeli soldiers that were involved was much larger, the number of armored vehicles, the incursion deep into the camp uh, was, you know, revisited the trauma that the residents there had lived through about 20 years ago when about nearly 60 Palestinians were killed during that incursion and hundreds of homes were leveled to the ground. Um, and this was preceded by Israeli promises of increased violence, of exacting a price on the Janine refugee camp, of taking revenge, if you will, on that camp that uh, is blamed for uh, so many things. So, uh, you know, to see Palestinian refugees leave in the dead of night with uh, nothing but the clothes on their back uh, because they had no other alternative, was collectively traumatic for Palestinians, not just for the residents of that camp. It brought back, you know, uh, the, the stories of, of the first refugees of 1948. And that's why this 
uh, incursion, I think, um, is a turning point in many ways uh, in the already very inflamed, inflamed situation on the ground. Uh, Francesca, you and other UN experts issued a statement saying that Israel's latest military operation against Palestinians in Janine may constitute a war crime. Why was this assessment made so swiftly after the assault? Yes, um, we reached this assessment looking at both the context and the specifics of this operation, uh, looking at the motive, although the motive, the intention, is not necessarily relevant as you, um, as you one can um, uh, one can understand from the definition of war crime that you gracefully quoted at the beginning of, um, of this uh, discussion. But Israel claims that it was targeting terrorists and self and individuals. Um, so this needs to be unpacked because while Israel has the right to ensure the security of its citizens from any threat, including those arising from terrorists, anyone who intentionally targets civilians through violence or intimidation uh, and in the pursuit of a political or ideological goal should be held accountable, Palestinians and Israelis alike. And so two decisions to be made here. One is that Israel confuses its security with the security of its annexation plan, which has meant over 56 years displacement and uh, residency revocations, home demolitions, house evictions. And what has happened in the recent months um, and what I have observed under my one-year tenure as a special rapporteur confirms that the context matters. Under international law, people who take up arms are not automatically considered terrorists. Think of Ukraine, where um, the Ukrainian people are uh, resisting the, uh, an illegal occupation, an illegal aggression, an illegal war uh, launched by, by Russia on the ground of self-determination. So resistance against oppressive regimes, including colonial or, or oppressive regimes, is recognized as an aspect of the right of self-determination. So this doesn't exclude that the Palestinians might commit crimes. It doesn't condone uh, the violence that they might use. They should be held accountable for that. But the alleged illegality of this act should not be confused mm. with the illegitimacy of the situation towards which these acts are directed. And the second element, and this mm. is something we considered, and the second elements are the modality. And an aerial bombardment with ground bombardment that has resulted into damage to 80% of the, of the homes, of the housing mm -hmm. units, damage to civilian infrastructure, targeting of, of hospitals, sewage, and essential basic civilian, um, civilian services with hampering access to, uh, to the wounded. These do constitute war crimes. So this is why we said, prima facie, mm. it, there, is, there is no proportionality, no distinction in this um, large-scale use of little force for what would otherwise be um, a law enforcement operation. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey, from your vantage point, is there enough evidence now from this latest operation in Janine to warrant an investigation into potential war crimes? And do you think that there will be one? No, they will not. And that's because of the attitude of the Israeli government, which has blocked all independent investigations. They will do it themselves. There was, back 10 years ago or so, Operation Cast Lead, where a thousand civilians were killed, but uh, 400 investigations were opened, 
by the Israeli army. And on the end of the day, only one person was sentenced to prison, and that was for uh, stealing a credit card, nothing to do with the operation. So it's not acceptable that one of the participants will do the investigation. Hamas didn't do any investigations, despite allegations of war crimes on the other side. So the problem is not, uh, well, the first problem is to ascertain what happened and by an independent investigation, and that we will not get because Israel blocks independent investigation. But if it's a war crime, there are defenses, and they have to be seriously considered. Uh, a refugee camp, mm. in principle, is a, uh, a place where it should be protected because war law basically protects civilians from the worst consequences of war. But uh, the Israeli army insists that there were weapons, that there were bombs, that mm -hmm. there were all sorts of offensive things. Well, did they find any? They killed 12 Palestinians. Oh, they say all the people killed were terrorists, but uh, they wounded quite a few people, and they said, well, not all the people who were wounded were mm. terrorists. So uh, this is pretty unsatisfactory. It's not, uh, it's something that has to be investigated. Were the people killed uh, simply refugees with no uh, reference at all to taking up arms against Israel? So I think that the answer in reality is what was the purpose of this attack, which did take lives and uh, destroy the, I mean, 18,000 people had to flee. Mm -hmm. uh, their, their homes were destroyed. What was the purpose? And mm -hmm. of course, there is no overwhelming purpose. Israel will have to do the same in, I imagine, three months' time. It will be, it's this terrible sense that, mm -hmm. uh, was expressed in a poem by uh, an English poet called Auden. He said, uh, I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. And uh, that seems to me to sum up a situation where there is no law. And that is... Uh, a situation which can only be changed by international agreement, by an international mm. conference. It seems the two-state solution is out of the window. We have to find another solution. And that is very difficult at a time mm. when the most barbaric war crimes, of course, are being uh, committed by Putin and his army in, in Ukraine. Uh, Noor, Jeffrey is saying that there should be an investigation, but that there won't be an investigation. There won't be an independent investigation. I want to get your thoughts on this. The Palestinian Authority uh, is urging the International Criminal Court to start holding uh, Israeli war crimes accountable. Um, is that something that you foresee happening? Well, I mean, it's difficult uh, to, to predict, and I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm lashing out. Uh, 
at the uh, ICC. But I think it's worth noting that since this prosecutor came uh, um, headed the the the, uh, uh, the ICC, he's been mute on Palestine and he's downgraded an investigation that is supposed to be open into uh, possible war crimes in Palestine, um, and basically to oblivion. He uh, does not talk about Palestine. He does not comment on clear and grave violations of international law happening in Palestine. He even downgraded the amount of budget allocated to the investigation that his office has supposed, uh, supposedly opened uh, uh, some time ago into the situation in Palestine. I think, um, you know, as much as we talk about the independence of, of the court and as much as we talk about independent commissions of inquiry, and there have been many into uh, uh, attacks uh, by Israel on, on Palestinians, it boils down to political will. And the fact that there are states who provide the budgets for the ICC and for other international bodies who basically hijack the process and who, by indirectly or directly uh, extort these bodies uh, into uh, uh, providing cover for Israel and providing it with immunity and continuing to pamper it and protect it from any form of accountability. We've seen that happen time and time again. Mm. We've seen countries write to the ICC against the idea of accountability, even though they pushed that same court to open an investigation into war crimes possibly committed in Ukraine when neither Ukraine nor Russia were members of the court. So the duplicity that is applied, the exceptionalism that uh, countries like the United States and others insist on when it comes to Israel is really quite, you know, jaw-dropping. And it's very consistent. Uh, we see it uh, year in and year out, not just the ICC, but at every international fora where accountability uh, is a possibility. Uh, Francesca, um, I want to get your response to this, too, because you heard Noor there talk about the fact that it was, I believe, in 2021 uh, when the ICC opened a formal investigation looking at whether alleged war crimes had been committed by either Israeli forces or by Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups. Uh, in the last couple of days, uh, we've seen a statement from the office of the uh, head prosecutor of the ICC saying that he's continuously monitoring the Palestinian situation. I'm curious, why is this all taking so long? I cannot speak with certainty. This is an answer that should be given by the office of the prosecutor. Um, whatever the reason, it's unacceptable. It really taints the credibility of the court and international criminal justice and international justice with it because it continues to perpetuate the image of international law with all its instruments at the service of a minority, uh, technically, of the West. And the only way also to dispel this, uh, this belief is to, to use all possible avenues without exceptionalism and without double standards. So far, so far, the International Criminal Court has not been touched. But there are two elements I would like to bring to the discussion. One is that universal jurisdiction can also be pursued through national courts. And this is an avenue that has been explored. It has failed, but it should not be forgotten. I do believe that this is still an opportunity to pursue justice. But also, restoration of the second element is that restoring international law 
um, doesn't limit itself to international justice. There is a third state responsibility um, uh, under international law. Israel, the illegality of the occupation is manifest. Uh, the annexation plan, which is absolutely prohibited under international law, is manifest. Settler colonial practices are ongoing. The apartheid regime is fully documented. Um, this is enough to take uh, decisive actions from an international community point of view, from UN member states, if there is a paralysis at the UN Security Council, individual states or group of states should act on their own accord to use, to recur to the economic, political and diplomatic measures countermeasures afforded by the UN Charter to bring this um, situation to an end. Uh, Francesca, let me also ask you, I mean, if, if what we're witnessing right now is the fact that universal jurisdiction is not being applied or there is no other really sufficient mechanism by which to try to bring accountability, uh, what's stopping Israel from essentially doing anything at once? I mean, even if they are being told that they are breaking international law. I believe it's uh, political pressure, and um, and there is a general. I think that this is part and parcel of the general. Um, Nur called it immunity. I think it's impunity. The general impunity that is granted to Israel, which is not an exception. You know, in a sense that there are many states in this world, unfortunately, which commit uh, abhorrent crimes and by atrocity crimes and international law violations. Jeffrey, let me get your vantage point. Uh, when it comes to international law, when it comes to international justice, um, will there be more international pressure put on Israel? Uh, will they feel like they can act with uh, impunity? Well, a lot of countries can. The country that is acting with the greatest impunity and doing the most damage at the moment is Russia, which has torn up the UN Charter and has invaded another country and is causing war crimes hundreds every day by bombing civilians, by uh, all the things that we can see on television. So uh, it is acting with impunity. And not only that, it's got nuclear weapons, which terrifies everyone. So we are in a very difficult stage at the moment International justice has only come on in the last 20 or so years. The courts are still building up their precedents and building up their powers. And at the moment, they can't touch Russia because it is a member of the Security Council and ridiculously can veto any action taken against it, even though it's mass murdering uh, Ukrainians uh, in a country which it invaded. So uh, this is not to say that the Palestinian victims are any lesser than the Ukrainian victims. It's just that Russia, as a member of the Security Council, has defied the international world order, uh, and so is in a different situation to Israel, which, uh, as I say, has some restraint. There was a very important development a week ago. It was on the 24th 
of June, which was the day that Russia seemed to come apart by Prigozhin's revolt. But uh, the commander of the Israeli army and the head of Shin Bet uh, and a couple of other senior officials attacked the settler movement, the right-wing group that seems to have overtaken Israel. And it may well be you've got a country where it has never had such a violent racist government where many members of Mr. Mm. Netanyahu government called for the extermination of uh, Palestinians. And this is the state of a country which is trying to to shackle uh, appointments to its Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court of Israel was one of the, uh, over the years, has been one uh, check and balance in the Israeli constitution. So Mm. I think it's going to get worse and the prospects of keeping Israel and and other countries in the world Mm -hmm. within the restrictions of war law. Let's face it, war law we've had for hundreds of years and you don't kill your prisoners, you don't destroy civilian houses, you don't mm-hmm. bomb and, uh, where, where children and uh, innocent civilians are going mm-hmm. to be killed. All Jeffrey, I'm, I'm sorry to Jeffrey, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're just starting to run out of time. Uh, Noor, I, I want to ask you uh, about one of the reasons why, why we're seeing all this happen right now is, is the biggest reason we're seeing what's going on when it comes to Janine happening right now, is it because the current government is the most right-wing government in Israel's history? Well, I think that's definitely part of it, because the ideology that drives this government is one that seeks uh, elimination um, and, and, and the decimation of Palestinians. They, they make no secret of that. Uh, if we can give them credit, we can give them credit for being honest and forward about what they plan to do uh, in the occupied territory and, and to the Palestinian people. But I think, you know, just picking up on, on what, you're, what, what the um, uh, judge was talking about, I think the fact that Israel has enjoyed impunity for so long and enjoyed this protection from other countries for so long, uh, from any accountability, has encouraged other countries to just say, well, you know what, this, uh, these laws and these practices, we can upend them and we can violate uh, the, the, the laws of war uh, uh, because we can, because we have the power to, because we have a veto. Uh, Israel doesn't sit in the Security Council, but it has a very good representative. Uh, the U.S. has used the veto power to protect Israel more times uh, at the Security Council than on any other subject. Um, so Israel knows it can literally get away with murder. There have been several reports documenting its previous uh, war crimes and grave violations. No accountability, zero, not just in terms of criminal accountability, but countries, instead of applying sanctions, instead of saying, we are not going to deal with you as a normal law-abiding state until you actually abide by the law, uh, are showering Israel with political gifts, with more financial uh, agreements, with even military cooperation mm-hmm. when this, this military stands accused of committing more crimes. And I think that's the third-party mm. responsibility uh, um, 
dimension of accountability that we need to focus on. Mm. And, and the international public opinion is prepared for that. People uh, around the world are overwhelmingly fed up, really, with that uh, double standard and with Israel get away, getting away with all these violations because people understand mm. that if you allow a bully to get away with bullying in one neighborhood, then all the bullies in all the other na- neighborhoods will be encouraged. Mm. Uh, Francesca, we just have about a minute and a half left, but let me just ask you, what are the types of tactics and weaponry used by Israel in this latest assault on Janine that most concerned you and your colleagues? Uh, the aerial bombardment and the ground bombardment uh, or and the ground attacks are both of concern. I mean, I'm not a military expert. I look at the consequences and, and I have a people-centered approach. So I'm, I look at what happens on the receiving end, as it was said before by others, um, the, the, the displacement of 4,000 people, the destruction of homes, the destruction of civilian infrastructures, whatever the means which caused it, um, the use of those means has, per- uh, has resulted in a situation which is prima facie unlawful. And again, it should be placed in a context. I mean, it shouldn't be read disjunctively from the daily structural violence that has permeated the lives of the Palestinians under occupation after 56 years and within 100 years of dispossession. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Nur Ode, Francesca Albanese, and Jeffrey Robertson. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Mohammed Jamjoum, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. Uh, that was a report uh, on the current security situation in uh, the West Bank of Palestine, where in the northern area in the refugee camp of Janine, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, launched an incursion uh, earlier this week, uh, killing 12 uh, Palestinians and displacing uh, more than 3,500. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, July 8th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit in another uh, controversial geopolitical region, uh, the African continent. uh, The United Nations peacekeeping missions have come under fire uh, in recent years. Uh, In Mali, they have been asked uh, to leave. Uh, They have been criticized in the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as other areas. Let's listen to a report on the problems associated with the United Nations so-called peacekeeping missions in Africa. Two UN peacekeeping missions in Africa have run into headwinds. Mali has formally asked the UN to terminate its operations there. So has the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The decision by the two African countries to openly question the ability of the Blue Helmets in helping them find peace has left analysts scratching their heads. This week on the program, we examine the achievements and challenges of UN peacekeeping missions in Africa and the possible impact of their withdrawal from Mali and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa.
Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts. Joining us from Luanda, Dr. Paul Faria, political scientist. In Harare, Dr. Chido Mutangadura, senior fellow on governance, peace and security at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. And in New York, Daniel Forty, senior UN analyst at Crisis Group. A warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining us in this discussion. Daniel, let me start off with you because Mali has asked the UN to withdraw its MINUSMA peacekeeping force immediately. In the DRC, dozens of people were killed during anti-UN protests last year in North and South Kivu provinces. What issues have become central to the tensions between the UN peacekeepers and the two countries? UN peacekeeping on the African continent is facing a pivotal moment. These missions have expansive mandates to support political processes and protect civilians, but those tasks are becoming increasingly difficult, especially as these countries are facing asymmetric tasks by non-state armed groups and are unable to move these political or peace processes forward. Mm -hmm. As a result, UN missions find themselves in really difficult situations, both demanding more of the UN, which the UN is often unable or limited to do, and are also pushing back against the UN's focus on peace and human rights when it doesn't suit some of their interests. So as a result, we've seen these governments who are the host countries, especially in the DRC and now in Mali, assert more of their own sovereignty and either ask the UN to work more closely with their priorities or if not to leave. And that's really the origins of what we're seeing in the DRC, which is why that mission has been preparing to leave for the past few years. And now most recently with MINUSMA, the peacekeeping mission in Mali, where the government just asked them to leave by the end of the year. Dr. Mutangadura, you know that whole question of uh, the processes have been unable to move forward. Both missions in Mali and the DRC have been overly criticized for inability to protect citizens. What has been hampering them from fulfilling their mandate, though? One of the issues um, is uh, the mismatch between the way that uh, UN peacekeeping operations are mandated and the nature of the threats. And a lot of it really does, um, really does link to the emergence of uh, regional conflict patterns. So it's very difficult for a single UN mission uh, to sufficiently uh, stop the violence. And I think additionally, it's also good to acknowledge the fact that UN peace support operations really are unable to um, completely bring a halt to the violence and completely resolve this. They work best when there is a robust, um, when there's a robust political process going on and working in support of that. And that's something that has been absent in DRC and in Mali. So, Dr. Mutangadura, what are those missions? Are they peace enforcement or are they peacekeeping? Uh, I think these are stabilization missions, which also has, which then allows them to uh, use ro what you call robust peacekeeping. And so they are allowed to use force, particularly in the protection of civilians. Uh, a key challenge is when it then comes to civilian protection is that they also have to work alongside government forces in order to, um, you know, when it comes to carrying out their robust peacekeeping mandate. And this is one of the things that has actually pushed the protests because for, for, for citizens seeing uh, peacekeeping missions working alongside government mm -hmm. in, 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 in a whole environment where the violence is not de-escalating and where the government forces themselves are seeing this violence, that has also been uh, a large blow on their credibility and their legitimacy in the eyes of the citizens. 
Dr. Farah, this is a very uh, interesting uh, issue here, but can you assess, first of all, the effectiveness of the two uh, peacekeeping missions? For, uh, has the presence of UN peacekeeping forces contributed to overall stability and security in both Mali and the DRC? I think uh, what we need to address uh, beforehand is to, you know, to pinpoint and a structural contradiction between, on one hand, uh, the United Nations uh, multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in, in, in Mali, the MINUSMA, and uh, one thing is what uh, the, the actual resolution, we, we're talking in this case of 2100 resolution 2000, 2013, that states clearly uh, what is the mandate of uh, MINUSCA. And it at the time, the, the mandate was to, to data, you know, some uh, significant threats, as well as to uh, uproot, I mean, the, the negative, negative forces. And uh, those are, I mean, the, the, the two, two points of, of the mandate that I can actually, you know, identify in this, mm -hmm. in this resolution. And without, another key point is all how then the United Nations a mission uh, would effectively contribute uh, toward the, 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 the extension and the restatement of uh, a, a state administration all over the country, as well as, well as to contributing effectively on uh, uh, reforming uh, the Mali security sector. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what the mandate says, and uh, one thing is, uh, the, other, the other thing is the reality itself. As my colleague panelists have clearly stated, as pointed out, the reality is far of uh, being stable and peaceful. Uh, I mean, there are still uh, uh, the factors uh, that uh, underpins the permanent uh, permanent instability within the country. That means that no uh, Mali, Mali uh, junta has got uh, the military power to contain the so-called uh, negative forces and radicalized uh, uh, forces within mm -hmm. the country, no, then the, the, the United Nations mission has got uh, uh, the effective power to, I mean, to, 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 to solve, you know, these existing, existing challenges that uh, the Mali is facing currently. Uh, I mean, it's a, a big contradiction between right. the mandate itself and uh, the real power of the United Nations to affect and, and affect significantly on, on the stabilization of the country. Daniel, I want to uh, address that powerlessness. You know, where is this disconnect between the mandate versus the reality on the ground? Absolutely. I think an important point to make is that UN peacekeeping operations are not counterterrorism operations. And this issue of stabilization mandates, which have emerged over the past decade and a half for UN peacekeeping, has really pushed the mission to the limits of what they're ultimately able to achieve and what they cannot achieve. UN peacekeepers are ultimately deployed, first and foremost, to support political processes, mm -hmm. not necessarily to help governments fight negative armed groups that they believe are detracting from their control and their ability to exert and provide basic services to the population. Well, as we've seen with the missions in Mali and the Central African Republic, and earlier uh, deployed the mission in the DRC, they've been asked to not only support political processes where not all of the parties are completely 
invested and willing to make the compromises and see them through, but also to help the government extend their ability to exist in many parts of the country to deliver services and also to fight these operations. So when in these situations, the missions are ultimately unable to succeed at their fundamental objectives. So, Daniel, then that brings us uh, to the question of if the governments are asking, uh, you know, the peacekeeping missions to exit, who takes a responsibility for failure of such a mission? Because given the fact that both regions are yet, you know, to achieve some semblance of peace. I, I understand that, that failure is an important question to ask, but we also need to understand the context that the missions are deployed and what happens after they leave. UN peacekeeping operations do not operate in isolation. There are bilateral security partners, there are regional and sub-regional organizations that are intended to perform different functions alongside them. But when we see UN missions struggling to achieve their goals, we have to look at what the host governments are able to do and mm -hmm. how much they've invested in the process of peace and development, the way that regional and sub-regional partners have worked alongside UN and national authorities, and whether they're all moving in the same direction. I think in Mali, one of the biggest challenges we've seen is that mm -hmm. the UN mission has been caught up in a very changing nature of international security support. We've seen European and French troops leave. We've seen the G5 Sahel, the coalition of countries in the region meant to fight terrorism, be disbanded. And we've seen Russia and the Wagner Group come in as the alternative security provider. In that essence, the UN is left to hold up an architecture that no longer exists. Right. So we need to understand how to, to move forward in this changing context. Dr. Faria, you know that is a, an interesting supposition there. What happens after the exit of, of the troops? What are the potential risks and challenges that could be associated with the withdrawal of, of the UN peacekeeping troops? I mean, I mean, for me, really, the departure of a uh, uh, United Nations uh, stabilization mission uh, within uh, uh, Mali, and uh, I mean, we are waiting to see if it's going to be the case for a MONUS commission in, in Congo RDC is uh, really to, to, to find out whether Mali and Congolese authorities are able to uh, self-maintain uh, the, the, the security and military effort uh, to bring peace into their own uh, territory. I mean, my view is that uh, none of those states will be able to deliver on, on, on these fundamental values that uh, so far are out of reach. Means that uh, it, Mali is going to still rely on uh, uh, this international partnership, bilateral and multilateral partnership with international uh, strategic partner uh, across Europe and also Russia, you know, we're talking about Wagner. And, uh, and also regionally, ECOWAS uh, needs also to address uh, its capability, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, support, I mean, uh, the member state uh, to tackle, you know, these existential, uh, you know, threats that are constantly facing. And ultimately, uh, what I should go to ask, uh, what the African Union peace and security architecture is, is going to, let's say, in the, in the event of uh, uh, this United Nations mission right. to, is to leave, then what the African Union is going to do? And uh, my answer is that the uh, African Union is, 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 is just powerless, you know, uh, in the same way as 
these uh, 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 states, Mali and Congo RDC, are powerless to to uh, in their own to challenge, you know, to 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 give a response. Right to the, the existing challenge they are facing now. So, I think Dr. if I can just rob her in here um, uh, for a minute, uh, if, if you'll pardon me. Dr. Mutangadura, I, I want to find out about this exit strategy and, and, and what uh, Dr. Farah is talking about, what the AU is actually going to do, because there are over 12,000 UN troops uh, in Mali since 2013. As we've discussed earlier, they were meant to protect the peace deal and train the Malian army the UN peacekeeping force in DRC has been present in that country since 1999. What was the initial exit strategy here? The failure of both of these contexts uh, to stabilize has really been a challenge. And so the sustained um, levels of violence and going higher and higher. In DRC, we're seeing uh, a lot of regional engagement and the revival of the inter-Congo dialogue, which is being led in um, Nairobi by Kenya's former president, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, and that also the question of SADAC also looking to deploy. And so the difference then in terms of looking at the exit of MINUSCO, if, if that's something that's on the table, and MINUSPA, is that in MINUSCO you do see that there are some type of efforts. Very, very, I think very, very important questions about whether these efforts are adequate, uh, these regional efforts would be adequate, but I think the fact that they're there and whereas in Mali that's not there. Because really a key point is until there is a viable peace process, there's really, uh, it's very difficult, the idea that a peace uh, support operation is going to bring about any meaningful, sustainable uh, type of peace or, or stability in our context. Daniel, you know, Chido is talking about uh, the lack of any viable peace process. Do these countries, therefore, then have the capacity to provide security after the withdrawal of the UN forces? This is what these countries are arguing. Um, it's under the, the framework of, of sovereignty, um, which is particularly important in the UN context because UN peacekeeping operations can't operate without the consent of the host government. And recently, since, ever since the May 2021 coup d'etat in Mali, the authorities have argued that their security forces are stronger and better positioned to lead counterterrorism activities and the UN mission there is actually hindering them. Mm -hmm. Crisis Group's view is that, you know, this is this is a risky proposition, not only because of security and the risk that we've seen Malian operations in particular have for human rights and civilian protection, but also because UN missions have been helping the Malian government provide basic services throughout the northern and central regions of the country. And when the UN leaves, not only will the Malian authorities have to step up their security operations, but they'll also face the realities of needing to provide basic support to their populations, and this is a lot to put on them, or this is a lot that they're taking on in a very short period of time. All right, uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be looking to possible reforms that can help the United Nations fulfill its mission of serving humanity effectively. To stay with us. <laughs>
Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me in Luanda, Dr. Paulo Farah Faraya in Harare, Chidom Tangadura, and in New York, Daniel Forty. Dr. Faria, let me come back to you on this uh, question of what needs uh, to be done if the security risks are going to be addressed given the exit of the peacekeeping uh, forces. I mean, the regional, uh, regional country, I mean, they have been engaged, you know, in, in providing uh, manpower, you know, for even these uh, United Nations mission, MONUSMA, but we really don't know by withdrawing, we just don't know if the, 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 these resources are going to be in place or mm -hmm. the, Mali is going to, to draw the support from uh, other countries in the region, let's say Nigeria and Senegal and so on and so forth, or within the African Union in a framework of uh, peace and security. Uh, or even you know, extend these multilateral you know, alliances with uh, Western uh, uh, superpower as they have the, the so-called P3 countries, you know, the Permanent Security Council members, you right. know, the United States, uh, UK, United Kingdom, and, and also France. Uh, I think this is a very you know, complex hybridity you know, environment that requires uh, the interaction of uh, uh, multi-entities also that should be engaged in, uh, in finding out, you know, what will be the best possible way forward of uh, this uh, permanent condition of instability that Mali is facing at the moment. I mean, what is taking place uh, in, 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 in Congo, RDC, right. I mean, uh, the departure of, uh, of the MONUSCO, I think, might even uh, leave a, a huge vacuum that uh, might be heavily exploited by uh, the radicalized, you know, uh, radicalized uh, forces so, uh, that are operated in Kivu, so, North and South. And South. Yeah, so Daniel, let me get your view here on the short-term effects and the long-term effects. What you see are the short-term and the long-term effects of the withdrawal of the peacekeeping missions there. Sure. You know, the future of large UN stabilization missions on the African continent is, is regularly debated here in New York. We, we understand that the, the Malian government's request for Minusma to withdraw quickly caught colleagues by surprise, but it's been the travel of direction about how UN peacekeeping should evolve, particularly in its engagement on the continent. UN diplomats and, and even UN leadership have expressed some skepticism that the current model of large stabilization missions that we've been discussing are really give effective given their costs and the resources and the mandates that they have. So what we've seen is the UN right now is really embracing its partnerships that understands that, that it cannot conduct peace operations alone mm -hmm. and that it needs to work closely with not only the AU but the regional and sub-regional communities on the African continent. The big policy debate right now in New York is about how the UN can financially and operationally support these missions. This has been a conversation that's taking place over the past few years, but it's rooted in the acknowledgement that the continent, the region, and the neighbors of these countries are sometimes better positioned to undertake certain tasks that the UN cannot. So what we need to see is a more organic and sustained level of cooperation between the UN and its partners on the African continent towards shared goals. And lastly on this, 
right. we, crisis group really needs to emphasize that security in and of itself will not help these countries stabilize, but that there needs to be cooperation on the political level as well. All right. On that question of uh, cooperation, Dr. Mtangadura, you know, we have seen criticism of the UN missions in Mali and the DRC, but UN missions in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, in Cote d'Ivoire were successful. What happened there and what is the difference here now? One of the biggest differences, I think, between those missions and these ones is that they were missions that were deployed within uh, a con context where there were ceasefires and, um, you know, where there was political will between the actors to, to, to seize the violence. Um, I think sort of outside of that context, just to bring a more contemporary comparison, would be UNMIS um, in South Sudan. So, yes, it has faced uh, quite a bit of criticism, but one of... I think uh, UNMIS's uh, sort of most significant um, most significant achievement was that it it has shown I think a very significant level of its ability uh, to 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 carry out its protection of civilian of of civilians' mandate and so that I think is is one of the the biggest differences and so those. Uh, peace missions in Sierra Leone, I think definitely uh, having been deployed in the context of, of, of peace agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that has sort of raised um, I, um, sort of some type of discussion that is it then best, I think, in situations such as GRC and to avoid those long, I think, long-term type of um, seemingly unending deployments. Right to wait until there is uh, some type of political process that is established. I'm not quite sure, I think, in the face of violence against civilians, and I think even if in the long term they're not sustainable, but I do think that some type of deployment, um, you know, does save lives. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complex, I think, um, debate. I think it's, it's very difficult to look at the one side of it, but I think certainly the question of a peace agreement does, help um, a peace support operation to carry out its mandate. All right. So I want to get a, a comment from um, all of you on the type of reforms. And let me start off with you, Dr. Faria. Given the tensions uh, that we have seen in Mali and the DRC, what kind of reforms will be necessary to enable the UN continue with its role um, of serving humanity or, in fact, meet the changing dynamics of these conflicts on the continent? Yeah, I mean, what the UN has to do really is to uh, recalibrate, you know, its its mission, you know, within within the country. I mean, it has to I mean, to dialogue with the, the, the key stakeholders. You know, the, the junta, you know, has to be uh, uh, consulted, and also all the regional uh, the regional uh, regional states also has to be taken into account in this kind of uh, uh, these enlarged dialogue to to find this proactive regional you know cooperative framework for for the the, I mean the, the solution for mali and also for congo rgc I mean, what i'm seeing now is a complete deadlock you know on one hand united nation uh grassy wait saying the rule i mean if uh, the junta is telling us to leave, you know, we can't just simply stay, you know, hang around within the country because then uh, a mandate then will require uh, a kind of a consent within right. the hosting nation then. And on the other hand, then we got uh, the, 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 the country that's saying, look, you know, the level of instability, they are still higher. And uh, we, we are unable to provide for security on our own means. 
and also the United Nations isn't able to do so then. I mean, the solution then has to be a multilateral solution right. for this complex and hybrid you know, environment that Mali and yet Congo RDC are facing currently. Dr. Mutangadura, your view? There was a time where the discussion was how about, you know, not focusing on the military component and focusing on turning it into a political mission to sort of push for some type of political dialogue process. And a lot of these conversations really uh, were set aside after the military takeover in Mali in 2020. I do think that, you know, just agreeing with what my colleagues have said, that um, I think some of the, in terms of the reforms, um, you know, there is the question that they have to work closer and closer with uh, actors on the African continent. Right. Um, since the, the, the establishment, I think the, the operation of the ACF, there's a more push for continental actors to deploy militaries. And I think this is something that the UN can support and should support because it tends to have more legitimacy and more buy-in from government. Um, I think there's also a question of, you know, looking at the mandate. Is it time to look at how UN peace support operations can have mandates of counterterrorism as well as uh, mandates that address organized crime? Because these are really two elements in DRC, in Central African Republic, in Mali, that, um, you know, not having those as their mandates have really uh, led to those conflicts being protected. So is there a way of adding these elements um, of adding these dimensions into UN peace support operation mandate. All right. Daniel, you have the final word. Thank you. I think there are four points the UN should be really focusing on. First, it's putting the politics first. That's not only in New York, but also in these countries as well, and working hard both through the formal UN channels, but also through major countries' own foreign policies to bring national parties and everyone involved in a peace or political process around a common vision and holding them to that. Second, I think the UN really needs to continue this pathway on embracing partnerships with countries in the region and sub-region because each of these organizations have aspects that they can do well on the political and security front and aspects that they're not necessarily well positioned to do. Third, I, I just need, as much as I agree with my colleague Dr. Cheeto on many points, I, I disagree that UN peacekeeping should become counterterrorism forces. That's not what the spirit or view of UN peacekeeping operations are from the countries in New York, both those who set the political mandates, but also those who contribute to UN personnel and prepare the doctrine and practice. Instead, I think UN peacekeeping need to better embrace peace sides of the, the, develop, the phases, but also development as well. Missions ultimately need to help the UN lay the groundwork for these countries to recover from their political crises, bring some economic stability as well, and lay efforts for other UN entities to ultimately help countries through their development journey. And lastly, it's ultimately, you know, putting UN peacekeeping operations in context where they can succeed. We, we've seen this right now, although I would argue that MINUSMA is not the end of UN peacekeeping, it's certainly the end of a particular chapter of UN peacekeeping defined by stabilization operations in large, expansive contexts where there's been little peace. All right. Uh, thank you also very much for being a part of this discussion. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in Luanda, Dr. Paolo Faria, political scientist in Harare, Dr. Chido Mutangadura, senior fellow on governance, peace and security at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. And in New York, Daniel Forty, senior UN analyst at a crisis group.
Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter, and you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back, and uh, that was an analysis of the status of the United Nations peacekeeping forces in Africa with specific reference to uh, Mali and uh, the Central African Republic as well as uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is Saturday, uh, July 8th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan, in the United States. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of our program. One day, child, I won't have to listen to your lies. On that day, I'll be able to make up my own mind. You know, I think I done finally realized. Yes, I have. And now I think I can put you out of my life. I'm going to be free. Yes, I am. Oh, oh. I'm going to be free. I'm gonna be free Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
don't know how it makes me feel, child. To be able to walk away from your smile if I can. And I'm going to be all right after a while. I think the Lord done gave me a strength now. I'm going to be free. Congress National Working Committee conference that's being held uh, this weekend in uh, the Republic of South Africa. Next year, uh, there will be national elections in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, the African National Congress uh, ruling party 
will have to uh, contest the elections against uh, several uh, opposition parties uh, now functioning uh, inside the country. We'll hear from the Secretary General of the ANC, Fakiri Mbalula. Of the ANC, Comrade Fakiri Mbalula, will then speak to you regarding those outcomes. Over to USG. Thank you very much, uh, Comrade Masengi, uh, National Spokesperson of the ANC, and uh, good morning to the journalists who have come to cover our story this morning, and uh, the listeners and the people who will be following uh, this uh, coverage on social media and everywhere else. Um, <coughs> The National Working Committee of the African National Congress met on Tuesday, the 3rd of July, 2023. Uh, this meeting took place immediately after the weekend in which the African National Congress Youth League successfully convened its long-awaited National Congress. This media briefing is to inform the nation of the outcomes of the National Working Committee meeting and the way forward in relation to the matters deliberated upon, their impact on the ANC, the country, and the world. Over the weekend of the 30th June to 2nd July, the ANC Youth League successfully convened its 26th National Congress. The ANC NWC welcomes this very important political milestone as the ANC Youth League will now effectively position itself as the true champion of youth development while simultaneously mobilizing them behind the vision of the ANC. This as elaborated in its Twin Tasks mission statement. The Youth League 26 National Congress was convened under the theme Program of Action for Economic Freedom and Social Change, now and not later. Arising from political discussions at the Youth League Congress, it was reaffirmed, it has reaffirmed, it was the reaffirmation of the integrity of the organization underpinned by its autonomy. Critical in this regard is the fact that National Congress delegates committed themselves to organizational renewal under the leadership of their newly elected officials and the NEC. That will ensure sustainability beyond the current leaders and members of the Youth League. The ANC fully supported the Youth League NYTT to convene this National Congress without interfering with the autonomous political processes on matters of political content and leadership preferences. The ANC will continue to defend the autonomy of the Youth League because it is only in that way that the Youth League leadership at all levels can truly and fearlessly champion youth interests and thereby be relevant to the youth of our country. Therefore, the ANC urged 
the ANC Youth League to live up to its historic mission of championing youth interests whilst rallying them behind the vision of the ANC. The ANC emphasized that the Youth League must fearlessly define its autonomous role as a disciplined integral part to the ANC. The, co the NWC was confident that uh, given the political climate under which the Youth League National Congress was convened, both the leadership and membership of the Youth League will now have a deeper appreciation of the importance of building a stronger organization and thereby never repeat the mistakes of the recent past, wherein the organization was in perpetual limbo for about eight years without a duly elected National Executive Committee. The ANC Youth League is now better poised to champion youth development with regards to combating the high levels of youth unemployment, expansion of youth entrepreneurship opportunities, as well as spearheading skills development uh, industry areas in industry areas relevant to the economy. The ANC recognizes and accepts that it is in the nature of young people to be impatient with change. And we are looking forward to a vibrant, militant, radical, disciplined, and autonomous ANC Youth League guided politically by the African National Congress. The top six officials that were all elected without being contested are President Colin Malachi, Deputy President Pumzile Mkrina, Secretary General Comrade Timtuo Tolo Nguze, First Deputy Secretary General Comrade Sakani Shiviti, Second Deputy Secretary General Comrade Olga Siate, Treasurer General Comrade Zuelo Masilela. The ANC Youth League National Congress successfully elected additional members to conclude the National Executive uh, Committee. There will be a hybrid uh, continuation uh, of the conference to conclude the business uh, of conference. The Western Cape ANC conference was also convened. The, work, the working committee welcomed the successful seating of the Western Cape Provincial Conference, which will help coordinate our political and organizational programs in the province as a whole, and assert the ANC as the leader of society uh, in the Western Cape. The Provincial Executive Committee of the ANC in the Western Cape will be inducted by Political Education and the Secretary General's Office immediately uh, so that the members of the newly elected executive are aligned uh, with their tasks uh, as leadership uh, and what is in expected of them as the leadership of the ANC in the province. On the manifesto review, the ANC manifesto review process is at an advanced stage and both the manifesto and the guidelines for candidate selection process will be presented before the National Executive Committee for consideration and adoption at the meeting to be held from Friday to Sunday this coming weekend.
the manifesto review will take place uh, on Monday. After the NEC meeting, we'll report to the nation on the manifesto review process under the theme how far we have gone to implement Let's Grow South Africa together. That is important for us because how far we have gone in terms of the implementation of the manifesto is our commitment to the people of South Africa. What we said we'll do uh, in five years in office as this administration, uh, what we'll do in terms of growing South Africa together. Notwithstanding the challenges that uh, the administration faced over a period of uh, uh, four years in office. The ANC is also seized with the process to assess leadership performances during the current government administration. This will enable optimal deployment by the ANC uh, going forward. We characterize this as leadership accountability. The National Executive Committee will also receive the guidelines on this and then uh, uh, so that uh, as we embark on this path, everybody is aware that uh, these have been ad adopted by the National Executive Committee of the ANC. We also reflected on the settlement agreement with Solidarity. We received a report on the settlement agreement with Solidarity. This followed the claims by Solidarity that uh, the regulations on the implementation of the Employment Equity Amendment Bill was biased against minority groups and therefore in violation of the Discrimination, Employment and Occupation Convention 111 of 1958. This meeting between the Minister of Labour and Employment and Solidarity was convened under the context of the national mediation process, which is a new requirement introduced by the International Labour Organization. Through this provision, government needed to demonstrate that uh, the allegations put forth by Solidarity were incorrect and damaging to brand South Africa. Hence, the need for the settlement agreement. The agreement stipulates that employment equity is not a one-fit-all, but uh, that provincial variations must be considered. The propaganda characterized by distortions of the Employment Equity Amendment Bill and the subsequently proposed regulations wrongfully suggest that the result of the amendments will be the disposal of uh, Colors and Indians from jobs and replacing them uh, with Africans. Some political parties have henceforth grossly misled the masses of our people on this as a way of uh, garnering votes in what uh, is a reigniting of the apartheid era tactics by creating a fictitious Russian gulf premised on baseless fears between Africans on the one hand and the Indians and Colors on the other. The NWC emphasized the importance of the ANC participating in public hearings to debunk this propaganda. 
which clearly is fashioned as a cheap electioneering strategy at the expense of truth by perpetuating racial polarization. The ANC remains committed to resolving the national question. The NWC further highlighted the paramountcy of class analysis as a uniting and an overarching ideological paradigm, spanning all formerly oppressed and marginalized black people, this being inclusive of colored Africans and Indians. And in sharp contrast to this, new black refer of divide and rule tactics that polarizes society. The ALC will continue to support affirmative action and employment equity, but not as a job reservation tactics, which was notoriously applied by the apartheid regime. You must understand to us as the ANC, blacks means Indians, colors, and Africans. So that's what blacks to us mean. To others, blacks mean something. But to the ANC and our national liberation uh, jargon, uh, we characterize uh, Africans in particular and black in general. And black include Indians and, and colored people. Therefore, the settlement agreement was aimed at debunking the myth that the employment equity was unconstitutional or a violation of the discrimination, employment and occupation Convention number 111 of 1958. The NWC further reiterates that these regulations are up for public consultations and we call upon all people and our structures to participate in this public hearing as we strive for a non-racial, non-sexist, democratic and prosperous society which is informed by our class analysis and not racial balkanization of society. On socio-economic transformation, the Working Committee noted the continued socio-economic transformation challenges pertaining, among others, the high cost of living, energy challenges, and generally matters of national transformation. The Working Committee discussed the continued challenges pertaining the implementation of the triple uh, BEE, which uh, was further highlighted at the Black Business Summit convened by the Black Business Council. The ANC will strengthen its monitoring on the implementation of the triple BEE both in the public and private sectors with proposed timeframes on the accelerated implementation of triple BEE. Our constitutional democracy will be hollow without attaining socio-economic equality across race, gender, and class. On energy, following months of sustained load shedding and the sus subsequent appointment of a minister in the presidency for electricity to coordinate and drive an all-of-government response restoring energy security, the interventions at ESCOM are beginning to show definite signs of turnaround which will see South Africa being relieved from the devastating socio-economic impact of energy shortfalls. Since 8 May 2023, a range of key 
performance indicators have all showed signs of sustained improvement. This includes the fact that generation output improved also, um, average for a week between 8-12 May 2023. Um, for the month of June, the average generation stabilized as well. Uh, as part of the winter 2023, plant outages was to be contained, and this has also happened. And uh, we had a massive uh, propaganda and uh, lies that were peddled that were facing um, a grid collapse. And it was uh, rumored to be coming from very reliable sources, intelligence from America and intelligence from South Africa. We all know about the story. There is no grid collapse. I was standing in this platform and Sputla Ramakopa, the minister, even the president, dispelled the, this as a total falsehood. Yes, we are faced with challenges, but it will not lead to grid collapse. So we are told that this information comes from the CIA. Now, uh, uh, we don't know that the CIA uh, has got um, unfettered ground to interfere in our affairs, our affairs and gather intelligence in South African soil and share it with uh, public representatives in our country uh, without uh, interacting with their colleagues uh, on government-to-government relations because CIA interacts with uh, South African intelligence. So that CIA is operating in our country and gather information is a cause for concern. But nonetheless, we have not faced that great collapse uh, during this month of June. This affirms the appropriateness of commitment to maintenance uh, as part of efforts to restore the reliability and stability of the fleet. And plant outages, partial load losses, as a result of uh, generating units um, not performing optimally and outage delays, non-return to service uh, on planned uh, dates, uh, continue, continues to consume a lot of uh, megawatts of generation capacity. The power stations managers are dedicating responses per fall time with the boiler tube leaks being a, uh, something that persists as a cause of generation capacity uh, losses. Partial load uh, losses has also come down and uh, from last week, June, and during uh, June 2023. Demand has also tracked lower than anticipated band during the winter projection. Again, uh, we were told that they were going to get down to stage 8 uh, during winter. We did encounter load shedding, and then uh, because of the demand is high during winter, um, nonetheless, we have not as well collapsed. Uh, but the propaganda out there was saying that they were getting to stage 8, to stage 10, there's going to be blackouts and all of that. And uh, the improvements are attributed to increased capacity as a result of the return to service of coal-generating units, previously decommissioned, um, improved demand management, 
consumers being more conscious about energy usage is one of the key uh, elements in terms of this improvement. The increase it yields from wind generation as well as large power users shutting down plants for plant maintenance during the June month. The improved performance in generation has resulted in an upward trend in the energy availability factor, EAF, and a reduction in the severity of load shedding uh, from daily stages four to six, uh, stage to one to three for the last two weeks of June 2023 with stage 3 largely only during evening peaks with the remaining part of the day, up to 16 hours, subject to only one stage of load shedding. Now, this is very important uh, development in terms of uh, the plans that uh, have been implemented, and we want uh, to raise our salutations to the management of ESCOM and the board for keeping the eye on the ball, and all the workers uh, at the plant level of ESCOM who are doing their part to ensure that uh, we are able to implement all the plans that uh, the ministry and government have directed that need to be implemented. So working together, everybody can do better. And we can even do better to grow South Africa together. So it is not an individual effort. It is a focused uh, effort at the level of government, and but most importantly to ESCOM uh, in particular. And that is why ESCOM must be supported by all of us, and uh, ESCOM must be supported uh, in terms of their endeavor to keep uh, the utilities free from all the challenges of state capture and corruption, and ensure that they do what becomes the plan of government and in that way alleviate a lot of uh, difficulty for our economy, SMMEs, as well as uh, uh, different uh, livelihoods, uh, families in our country. Cost of living, the NWC noted that 7.1% inflation is well beyond interest uh, targeting range, leading to higher cost of living. Whilst the Working Committee noted the continued correctness of the social grant policy enabling indigent individuals to receive 350 per month, the NWC further upheld and appreciated that the masses of the people first and foremost want jobs as basis for sustainable livelihoods. The Working Committee noted the importance of the Reserve Bank working in conjunction with Treasury to effect measures that will mitigate against high inflation, such as expanding consumer uh, basket goods earmarked for zero rating, uh, on creating employment for sustainable livelihood. Government must look into public works uh, projects, such as potholes, repairs on roads, road and bridge construction, as well as increasing sewage capacity to improve the health conditions of our people. We have also held a bilateral meeting with the SACP. Both the ANC and the SACP agreed that the meeting was long overdue, whilst uh, welcoming the opportunity to meet. 
High on the agenda of this meeting were organizational and governance issues on the African leaders' peace mission to Ukraine and Russia. The SACP commended the role played by President Cyril Ramaphosa, which among others focused on continental food security and trade on critical goods such as uh, fertilizer. In addition to discussing geopolitical issues, the alliance the bilateral meeting between the ANC and the SACP also discussed the upcoming BRICS uh, parties' political plus dialogue scheduled for 18th to 20th of July. 2023 and the BRICS uh, summit scheduled for August 2023. Other issues discussed within the context of the state of the NDR was the high unemployment levels with 11 million people unemployed which could be linked to the colonial apartheid monopoly structure of the economy. It was also agreed that land redistribution must be accelerated. The SACP further called on government to increase state investment in the economy. Both the ANC and the SACP discussed a number of critical issues of mutual concern and also agreed on further bilateral engagements on a number of issues going forward amongst which includes the economy and energy issues. We also discussed the reconfiguration as proposed by the SACP, and we agreed that uh, uh, the centrality of alliance partners in key decisions uh, that are taken is critical and must be maintained. There were also consensus towards dealing with issues of violence and repression throughout the African continent, such as the situation in Eswatini. With Sanko, the ANC continues to assist with the important task to help Sanko attain unity, as well as rebuilding a stronger organization. Tomorrow, we'll have a joint uh, briefing with uh, the interim leadership of Sanko to outline a roadmap towards the unity a process of Sanko and the holding of a Sanko National Conference uh, this year. Uh, we'll reflect on that. We have engaged with Sanko at different uh, levels, different groupings, and Sanko veterans. Sanko on its own have arrived at an agreement that uh, they need to work together as the different groups uh, that. Uh, uh, came out of the Conference of Alexander, which is the original conference of Sanko, and the breakaway conference that was held in Devon. Uh, both groups have come together through what they call an integration process. Uh, we have met also with uh, uh, Sanko elders, led uh, by Tozanile, and some uh, splinter uh, groups from the groups of Alexander and so on, uh, the likes of um, Dagani, who was expelled by Sanko, uh, who are working under the veterans of Sanko. We have also met with them. And uh, in this particular regard, uh, uh, we have shown interest in ensuring that Sanko lead its own process towards its own unification and uh, deal with whatever challenges of leadership that arise. Uh, among the warring uh, in a lack of uh, 
better characterization parties uh, within uh, Sanko. So tomorrow we will then outline a, a joint integration program of Sanko uh, towards the Sanko National Conference. The Public Protector Report, the NWC further reiterated its support of the Office of the Public Protector and welcomed the report by the Acting Public Protector on allegations pertaining the criminal events that took place at the Palapala farm involving theft of money. The ANC reiterates that it is only opportunists who seek to abuse the provision of the Executive Ethics Code. To suggest the President violated the provision therein. The ANC welcomes the Public Protector Report, which found nothing untoward in the conduct of the President, including the fact that there was no evidence of paid work outside his duties as President of the Republic. The ANC reiterates its alarm at the attacks on the integrity of the Office of the Public Protector, merely because some are disagreed with the report by the acting public protector. We view such attacks as undermining our democracy and constitutionalism because political parties have the right to take the public protector's report on review at any given time. But uh, to impound and attack the integrity of a woman who is leading the process without any uh, legal basis for that matter is incorrect and it cannot be promoted uh, by South Africans uh, of all walks in our country. Matters must be probed. We are a country that respects the rule of law. Uh, Mkwebana herself with uh, a judgment, she was taken on review and a judgment was set aside in a court of law. And then she won a reputation uh, of being erratic and uh, not legally sound in terms of most of the decisions that uh, she had taken. And uh, there was no attack uh, on her uh, except the fact that uh, she was being challenged uh, legally by different groups in society. So the ANC as a party has been very consistent in this regard and believe that uh, the institutions and Chapter 9 institutions must be respected, including judges. Nobody is a demigod, including a judge, but the judge's decisions uh, must be taken on sound basis. They can be reviewed, and it has been proven that some judgments uh, uh, on review are actually set aside. And uh, we must follow the rules uh, in terms of uh, the rule of law in our country. On the national dialogue on Russia and Ukraine, the ANC convened a public engagement through a national dialogue on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which saw the participation of various ambassadors, academics, public commentators, and everybody else. It was a successful event and further solidified our position as a messenger of peace, not war. The ANC reiterated the correctness of its policy stance on non-alignment and anti-war posture. This national dialogue on the Russia-Ukraine conflict 
appreciated that our non-allied and anti-war stances enabled our country, represented by President Cyril Ramaphosa, to effectively and directly participate in the African leadership peace mission, meeting both Ukrainian President Zelensky and Russian President Putin, urging them to end the war as a matter of agency. Emerging in the dialogue was also discouraging other countries from arming either Russia or Ukraine that fuels the warfare. The ANC practically demonstrated that dialogue across antagonistic parties is not only possible but the only way to resolve differences and various areas of conflict, which was the premise of our negotiated settlement ushering in the new post-1994 democratic dispensation. We had robust discussion, uh, especially between uh, Europe, particularly Russia and Norway, uh, which came from different uh, views, uh, which was quite interesting. And we believe that uh, that is what characterized uh, the importance of talking and engaging um, even if people don't agree, but it is important uh, to engage. The NWC noted the continued positive strides made by the ANC in various by-elections. The Working Committee noted the increases in voter registrations and will in due course report on further strides being made. The ANC will focus on social categories such as the youth, as first-time voters, as well as women on voter registration. The Working Committee believes churches and Amakosi can play an important role to encourage and increase voter registration. <coughs> the ANC Women's League National Conference, uh, the preparations are at an advanced stage towards convening the ANC Women's League National Conference. The Women's League National Conference will be held from the 14th to the 16th of July, 2023, Nazareth. <laughs> so we're going back to Nazareth, Youth League, ANC, and the Women's League. So next week it is the Women's League uh, that is uh, going to Nazareth. So we wish them well, and we will also again uh, want to reiterate we are working with the Women's League to ensure they convene a successful conference. Uh, we do not interfere with their choices of who they want to elect and the political content of conference. We are nonetheless dealing with the issues that are pertinent in relation to the matters that, that affect the successful holding of a national conference of the Women's League. On Banyana Banyana, the ANC congratulates Banyana Banyana as they prepare to participate in World Cup and wish them every success. Whilst we commend the resolution of the disputes between SAFA and Banyana Banyana, we further urge SAFA to appropriately incentivize these national heroes for once more for putting our country on the world map through this World Cup participation. We thank the proactive role uh, by the Minister of Sports, Arts and Culture, Comrade Zizikwoto, for helping resolve the impasse between SAFA and Banyana Banyana. We call on Corporate South Africa to fully support efforts at professionalizing 
women football in South Africa. That is important because they support only men football and it is important that uh, uh, SAFA must move with speed to professionalize women football working with PSL and everybody. We commend the minister for bringing everybody together to resolve this particular impasse. Incentivizing uh, our, our women, young women, like Banyana Banyana, should, nobody should apologize for that. We think that uh, their demands were legit and that nobody could ignore them. Otherwise, we were going to rally the country as a whole to boycott that, uh, that uh, World Cup because it cannot be at the expense of ignoring genuine uh, demands of Banyana Banyana and simply trample over them as though they mean nothing. Uh, these women have done us proud as a country. They, they won the Africa Cup. They've improved a lot under Desiree Ellis. Uh, they've improved a lot. You can't even compare them to Bafana Bafana. Uh, you can't, you can't compare them. They, they overtook Nigeria and many other nations in the African continent, South Africa in Africa, which is what is important. They are a force to be reckoned with. So, Banyana Banyana was good for everybody who came to the party and raised their voices, women groups, and everyone to stand up uh, for an injustice that has been done to these uh, young ladies of our country uh, who continue to fly the flag. Uh, Safa must get this house into order. We don't want to interfere. Minister must work with them uh, to get their house into order and uh, to have a clear plan for football, including for women uh, in our country. On police uh, road rage that involved the VIP protection of uh, Minister uh, the Deputy President Mashatile. The ANC was uh, extremely alarmed by the news of a road rage incident involving members of SAPS assigned uh, to protect uh, the Deputy President. This was not only cowardly, but runs against the grain of what SAPS must stand for, which is to protect all members of society. We believe that uh, the majority of the policemen and women serve our country diligently. But uh, such incidents put a serious blight on the police service as a whole in their selfless national service in our country. We accordingly urge the minister and everyone involved to allow IPIC to investigate this matter. With, uh, as a matter of agency to check whether there were indiscretions in terms of the police activity because we cannot answer why they acted in the manner which they did. We saw a small polo and then uh, uh, people being trampled upon by police. Uh, we don't know. Uh, what uh, provoked that activity, IPIT must investigate that. What was involved, uh, what threat did they see in that polo that made them to act in the manner in which they did. 
um, and no stone must be left, you know, uh, to check everything to ensure that uh, this matter is properly investigated. That uh, the alleged perpetrators of this violence be immediately suspended and ensure consequence management in this regard should they be found to be in the wrong. We call for the suspension of those who were involved and ensure consequence management in this regard should they be found to be in the wrong. The ANC also condemns the road rage incident that saw an off-duty sub-police officer allegedly shot to death a metro police officer. What was unfortunate was that the violent altercation resulting in the tragic death involved two officers charged with enforcing the law. We call on government to support all police officers, both subs and metro police, through appropriate occupational support as they discharge their work mandates to avoid such incidents resulting in injury or death. We also call on the IPIT to investigate this incident and ensure any possible appropriate consequence management where wrongful conduct is asserted. We note that this activity of officers on duty doing their job that they are employed by government to execute is now blamed on the ANC. The ANC as a brand is tarnished by opportunists, by chance takers, uh, who at any given point they jump to the opportunity uh, to attack the, the organization. We are equally dismayed by acts like those and will never support anything that tramples on uh, innocent uh, citizens, especially civilians. We go around this country with our cars and everywhere and people show us the middle finger. Uh, sometimes when we are within the state, uh, people hate blue light uh, with passion, especially in the Western Cape when uh, a premier illegally banned blue lights when it's not a call. And then in the Western Cape, once you put on a blue light, you must be rest assured that uh, you are defied there by the citizens. And it has happened uh, throughout the country, so uh, where people will not want to move when they're supposed to move, because blue light is blue light. It's meant for a particular uh, purpose. So in this particular instance, um, we believe that uh, people must act with caution. Uh, there should be serious aggravating circumstances that lead somebody to act in the manner in which they did. But we can't all be investigators. Let's say by now somebody would have died. Those police officers must account for their actions. Um, uh, why did they take such actions uh, on that polo and the occupant. And uh, the whole of uh, that area they were in is very easy to see what happened because it's covered with uh, monitors 24-7. So nobody must come and tell us they didn't see what happened. That whole area, all of it is covered. So it will tell us 
through the investigation who was on the wrong. And those who are on the wrong, the law must take its course. And if citizens were on the wrong side of the police obstruction of the police work, they too must be educated and be brought uh, to book. But those incidents are very, very bad, especially to unarmed people, uh, ordinary civilians, uh, being kicked like football like that. It is, it is really worrisome. The ANC condemns uh, on a very strong stance this act of violence uh, in our streets. And we want to urge IPIP under the leadership of Ndosi uh, to ensure that uh, this matter is investigated and properly reported uh, to the public because it's a matter of public importance. Uh, it, is, it is easy point scoring to apportion blame on the deputy president who doesn't carry out his own protection but people are employed to protect him. And those people are law officers. So in this particular instance, uh, we must focus on those who execute the implementation of the law to ensure that they do it appropriately. And that is what is important. The ANC will hold its National Executive Committee meeting from Friday to Sunday this coming weekend and various issues for discussion and implementation will include combating crime, employment creation, water and sanitation, and general, generally the state of the economy, with focus on the relevant interventions that must be made. The ANC will desist with accelerated implementation of its national conference resolution on a number of socio-economic challenges such as service delivery. But over and above that, we have made a commitment that this year is the year of acting decisively in the interest of the people. This NEC will equally make that evaluation through the intervention uh, of our government on these particular matters. That includes electricity supply. Condolences, the NWC tips, uh, is a revolutionary banner in honor of the memory of comrades Mahuma, Katija, Kachalia, Nokaniwe, Antinya Tela, Junet, Pahat, and Salimon Khan. We convey our sincere and profound condolences to their loved ones. And uh, they will be remembered for their selfless contributions to the struggle for our freedom and democracy. The ANC received with shock and deep sadness the news of the tragic passing on of comrade uh, Dr. Deni Mokumo, who died on the 3rd of July in a car accident involving a truck on the N1 in Limpopo on his way home from the 26th Congress of the ANC Youth League. Comrade uh, Deni Mukumo was the current branch chairperson and VC member in Ward 31, TJ Lituaba branch in the Mukupani Mukhalakwena sub-region, which is part of the Waterberg uh, region in the Limpopo province. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the African National Congress Secretary General, Akile Mbalula, 
uh, delivering an address uh, this weekend uh, at the National Working Committee uh, Conference uh, of the African National Congress in uh, South Africa. And that's going to uh, conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to have access to uh, this uh, edition and other editions of the Pan-African Journal, or Worldwide Radio Broadcast, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, radio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to have access uh, and read uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our program today uh, with the sound of uh, the jazz uh, trumpeter, Kenny Durham. And uh, we've enjoyed uh, bringing you uh, this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. And, of course, please uh, turn in and tune in uh, to our program uh, for future editions. Uh, this is taken from the album entitled Quiet Kenny. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.